This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast that proves that award season truly is a year-round affair. I'm Mike Hogan, the digital director of Vanity Fair. I'm here with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. Hi, guys. Hello. We're back from all kinds of things. Vacation, Comic-Con. <laughs> Comic-Con. Yeah. Uh, we have an exciting show lined up today. We're going to talk about Joanna's adventures in uh, San Diego at the <laughs> Comic-Con. And yes. then we're going to talk about the upcoming Toronto International Film Festival, which just announced um, a big chunk of its lineup. And then we're going to go back and look at the 2013 Best Picture race when uh, Toronto sensation Argo defied the odds with no Best Director nomination and one Best Picture. Uh, but first, let's talk about Comic-Con. I'm going to turn it over to Richard, who's going to quiz Joanna about this. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think I've been tasked with this partly because, like I said last week, I that Comic-Con, for whatever reason, that kind of information is something that just always eludes me. Like, I pay attention to it, but then I can't really follow the narratives of 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 you know who's what the big panels are and everything. So Joanna, just like from your perspective, what was the big event at Comic Con this year? Was it Brie Larson as Captain Marvel, or was there something else I'm missing? Well, the Brie Larson thing was sort of one of those maddening confirmation of a really strong rumor. It was sort of when they announced Alden Ehrenreich at Star Wars Celebration, something we already pretty much new. Um, so I don't know that it was a big surprise, but everyone seemed really, really excited about it. I will say just the entire Marvel slate, their whole presentation was the biggest show of the weekend. They skipped last year because they had their own, you know, Disney centric uh, event last summer. So they didn't have to go to Comic-Con, but they, you know, it was a literal smoke and light show in, in the big hall where everyone was gathered. So that was so really kind of like impressive. the Republican national convention basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah without Scott Baio. Um, right, and, right. and then, uh, in that morning, you know, Saturday of Comic-Con is when you have two the two biggest panels. So the morning was Warner Brothers, and I think the big narrative there is can their slate of superhero movies sort of rebound from Batman v Superman and and Man of Steel? They seem to be having trouble really getting their rival superhero slate off the ground. Um, and I think a lot of people came out of that panel really excited for Wonder Woman and the diverse slate of directors they have coming up. And so I think some people are happy to be excited about 
you know, Batman and Superman, who are the most famous characters in all of comic books again. So, uh, you know, whether or not that's that's just a, you know, too much excitement from Hall H and not, you know, it's the same as Festival Fever, Comic-Con Fever. I don't know, but but it seemed to be a, a rosier picture. There were a lot of trailers that sort of, well, I guess were, were premiered there while you guys were watching live, and then they sort of popped up on YouTube for us civilians later. Um and I, you know, I, I, uh, I was able to watch a few of them, uh, you know, a couple days ago. And I have to say the Wonder Woman for I've been sort of down on the DC movies, to be honest. Yeah, um, me too. The Wonder yeah. Woman trailer is pretty great. It, it makes me pretty excited. Do you think that they're are they making a kind of conscious stylistic change to that? Or is it just like this one might work because it's like a more fun character or something? I mean, I think bringing Patty Jenkins in from the start was was a good call. Uh, She's a director who did like Monster, right? And she's kind of been an indie film director, and now she's gotten this big, this big superhero franchise thing. Right, but they also seem to really put this big emphasis on their directors that they have coming up, like uh, James Wan, who is a horror director who will be doing Aquaman, and uh, Rick Fumayima. I might have uh, bungled that name a bit, but he did Dope, which was this great uh, indie film that came out last year, two years ago, last year. Um, uh, and it, Confirmation with Kerry Washington this year. Right. So, yeah. So he like these are exciting directors that are not quite your typical Zack Snyder. And I think they're really trying to push that as a concept that their upcoming films will look different than what we've seen from them before. Whereas Marvel, because they have such a strong unified creative control over their films their show has more to do with the star power that they have which is really incredible you know this is an oscar-based podcast so it's worth mentioning all the oscar caliber talent that was up there like Benedict Cumberbatch, Tilda Swinton, Kate Blanchett wasn't there but we saw footage of her in Thor 3 you know and Brie Larson our most recent Oscar winner uh, being the crowning glory of the Marvel panel so you know it was just it was just famous Oscar contender after famous Oscar contender on that stage and do you think that being being in a Marvel movie is now going to be sort of one of the requirements of a career like you know you know doing a romantic comedy would get doing an awards movie is marvel movie <laughs> has that become already like if you're not really big in hollywood unless you've done one of those i i think it might be like if you're if you're an avenger you're you've really made it um the most you impress- get to be kind of part of that fun club you know because there's so many good actors in it now it's so good so, so many good actors and it really seems like they like to hire people who are fun, who will be, it's, I think it's that Disney influence. They like to have these cheery, upbeat role models sort of out there on the press tour, you know, with a few exceptions, but you, you want your Chris Evans and Pratt's and, um, you know, Brie Larson, I think fits right into that of these really sunny figures out there pushing their brand. So it's pretty so, impressive. So, Mar- so Marvel's kind of the, the big market team now. And, and it sounds like Warner Brothers is, kind of having to play moneyball here they're sort of like let me find the under uh underrated sort of sundance type director and hand them a gigantic enterprise and see if we can make some magic and if not i only paid them like five million instead of 50 million is that what's going on here Uh, you know i think that's part of it with an exception of ben affleck who is you know the big glaring exception in there they do the same with their with their lead actors you know like gal gadot or um jason momoa ezra miller like these are their big stars and they're not the same level as the marvel stars so it's more like they want to 
build up their care, you know, based on the fame of their characters more than the fame of their actors or the um, hard hitting talent of their. Well, no, these are talented directors, but as you say, they're they're the scrappy underdog, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you could also argue that Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth and Jeremy Renner and a few other Avengers types weren't huge when they were announced. You know, they, right. they were probably a little bigger than than Ezra Miller or somebody, but. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't know who Chris Evans was before he sure. became Captain America. Unless you had seen all. like not another teen movie or or something, Scott Pilgrim right? <laughs> or Scott Pilgrim. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but so, yeah, it, it's it's true. But I think they're getting you know with the likes of Jeff Goldblum and Kate Blanchett and Thor three or Brie Larson. You know, I think they're getting more and more ambitious with what they can do with their leads. Or Tilda Swinton, the Black Panther cast, which is Lupita Nyong'o, Michael B. Jordan, Chadwick Boseman, obviously. Like that's just. Zanae Garai, the actress from Walking Dead, and a playwright who's just had a really acclaimed play on Broadway with Lupita Nyong'o in it. Like that's- it is, But it's like for casting, they're just looking at Gold Derby. They're just yeah. like, so let's look at the top 10 most likely best actor nominees and yeah. like fly, find, a, yeah. find a superhero for these people to play. Is there an so Irish one on for Saoirse to play? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, can can Donald Gleason be something? I don't know. Green so, Widow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Green Widow. I'd watch Green Widow. <laughs> that sounds good to me. And then on the, you know, on the TV front, uh, there were some really, Netflix really brought it. Uh, like some of the... Um, TV shows that are very well established have become kind of famous at Comic-Con for not really revealing anything. People just want to be in the room with the cast of Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead. And those shows are so big that they can get away with just not really telling anything about what their shows are going to do. Um, Whereas Netflix, I mean, they're no scrappy underdog themselves, but this is their first year at Comic-Con. So for their Marvel TV panel, they just laid it all out there. They put, they aired a ton of footage and uh, it was a really stark difference and and really impressive and ambitious what they have coming from that, from that arm of Marvel. And then American Gods, which is this big stars show that I think is going to be, huge has a potential to be huge we how did see. that look to you did you get to see footage or what, what how did what what did they do with their presentation or were you able to go to their presentation i i was i had to sprint across the san diego convention center from the game of thrones panel to american gods because they overlapped and then i got like smuggled into the american gods panel so i think i was maybe the only person at comic-con who went to both panels because they scheduled it sort of intentionally back to back you were promo for the flash that, that's what you, you were cynically <laughs> used right. in some viral I was, marketing <laughs> i was just a streak of lightning across and the, the convention center forthcoming it's uh, <laughs> But no, they showed a trailer and the footage looks really stylish and good. Um, Brian Fuller, who did the very stylish Hannibal, is one of the EPs. And um, and they announced Kristen Chenoweth as an actress uh, joining the show. So, no, the panel was great. And what was interesting about that panel is... Uh, you know, sci-fi writer Neil Gaiman is, he wrote the book American Gods and he's one of the producers on the show. And, you know, they bring out the cast and the producers and then they bring out Neil Gaiman and he got the biggest applause. And as he rightly pointed out, he's like, writers never get this much applause in a room. So he's the next George R. R. Martin. That's, that's the possibility here, right? He truly is. And I mean, he was way bigger before, you know, way bigger than George before Game of Thrones premiered, right. but uh, he yeah. he is definitely that cult of personality kind of author that could inspire that kind of following. So we'll see so, about that. Keep an eye on that show. So Joanna, for people who listen to this who might be like me, which is I watch all the Oscar movies and I watch Game of Thrones, but I'm not that 
tapped into like this culture. Right. How, how would you quickly describe American Gods? Like, what's the hook there? Sure. Um, it is set in the now in America, and it's about the old gods of Europe and Asia and Africa uh, who have come over to America with the various immigrant cultures that have come to America and then become neglected as America starts worshiping the likes of technology and media and loses touch with its culture. So there's actual physical manifestations of these gods who have become neglected and are angry that they've been forgotten and sort of their plan to get attention of America back from their glowing phones and TV binge watching and all that sort of stuff. So it's a strange concept. It's very mythological, but um, there's a lot of talent. Ian McShane is in the cast uh, It's as the main god who is Odin of Norse mythology and Crispin Glover and Cloris Leachman. Like it's a really, really great cast. Isn't and Gillian Anderson involved somehow? Gillian Anderson crazy? is, is yeah. the god of media. She's the god of television. So you're going to oh, see her cool. dressed up as a number of different characters. And oh, cool. uh, yeah. So uh, we'll we'll see. I mean, I I feel like every other week we hear the story of this show is going to be the next Game of Thrones, and none yes. of them have quite gotten there a yet. A lot of wishful but... thinking there. <laughs> yeah. But if you're behind this, that makes me think this actually will be or has a better than even yeah. chance versus a lot of the other ones because I feel like you're you know you're locked in on this, Joanna. Maybe, but I'm also in the tank for Neil Gaiman, so you have okay. to take my right. my bias yeah. my bias in there, you know. <laughs> But are you but, saying that my my agent is lying to me about the pilot script I wrote, the fantasy script? That, I mean, he's, he he assures me that I'm going to. No, that I'm is the, the next, next Game of Thrones. Writer. That that okay, is good. the next Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, so I just had one kind of last thing to ask you about, Joanna. Kind of a, a survey of Comic Con. You've been now a few years. Um, do you think that uh, has it become kind of the corporatized, taken over by film studios thing that people complain about, or or does it feel still feel kind of like a vital um, sort of marketplace or of ideas in, in 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 the sort of world of genre and and comic books and sci-fi and stuff does it still does it still have the energy of something that's um necessary kind of to the community i think it's both <laughs> um, i think if you you can experience the con a number of different ways if you don't spend your days in hall h which is the big hall where all the major studios do, you know do their presentations and just walk the floor you have a completely different experience and so i think that that original kernel of comic-con still exists but it is definitely battling for its space with the fact that comic-con has become this promotional arm for um nerd culture tv and film which has become so mainstream um i was i happened to attend a couple parties this year uh with our lovely colleague julie miller and at the entertainment weekly party which is the it's the vanity fair oscar party of comic-con um they filled their this pool at the venue with a bunch of models in day-glow yellow and pink inner tubes reading issues of Entertainment Weekly in the pool. And uh, the most entertaining part of that party to me was talking to all these writers and creator types like Joss Whedon or Dan Harmon or Brian Fuller who've been going to Comic-Con for a decade maybe more and they were staring they were standing on that lip of the pool staring fascinated 
at this display of Hollywood. I think Joss Whedon called it a Hollywood party, a parody of a Hollywood party or a Hollywood party thrown by someone who had never been to Hollywood. He was just like this <laughs> symbol of, you know, and he was he was joking that he was going to put it in his next movie about, I don't know, the perils of Hollywood. And, you know, it was just watching them sort of fascinated and horrified and delighted by, you know, this big lavish party at the center of what used to be a thing by outsiders and scruffy nerds, you know, and these guys were outsiders and scruffy nerds and now they're big power players, you know. Somewhere in his mountain retreat, Robert Redford just nodded knowingly. Uh. He's he's seen that happen before. Well, I I mean, I'm going to tell you, there is a part of me um, that looks at Hollywood today and thinks... Uh, boy, it's all just turned to shit. Like there's nothing interesting or creative happening and there's no originality and everyone's just looking to find the next comic book to, you know, adapt. But there is another way of looking at it, which is that that's kind of the snobby, you know, point of view of somebody who doesn't really understand this culture, geek culture. Right. For, and, and, and that actually another way, a positive way, I guess, of looking at it is that it's the rise of a really robust um, culture that was underground for a long time and is having its shining moment right now, and and yeah. that and that it actually does a lot more efficient job of delivering giant audiences than the old like cool Robert Redford style mm-hmm. stuff right. ever right. did. Yeah, and I mean I think that you know it it creates an economy that um, hopefully would have some sort of trickle down effect for the indie stuff that Sundance you know has used to do or or still does. I mean obviously, but. Um, you know, I think that if if Tilda Swinton gets to be in, you know, a, a Marvel movie, then maybe she can make four other weirdo little things that, you know, that, right. you know could make a dent at the Oscars or the Independent Spirit Awards. You know, hopefully the the, the, the kind of it, it rises all ships, this this geek culture kind of swell. And at least lend some soul to something that can be, you know, I won't name names, but there are certainly have been comic book films that have come out, out over the past couple of years that just feel completely empty and and your hope is that a Tilda Swinton a Kate Blanchett a Brie Larson can give it some depth um and make it into the kind of I mean because comic books are American you know going back to American gods they are American mythology like this is the closest we have to mythology or these characters that so many generations have grown up with and so I think there is potential for depth there it's not always achieved and it's certainly a lot of the studios just have dollar signs in their eyes. But I think there's potential there. There's some good intentions with these directors and writers. And the fact that, you know, both Marvel and Warner Brothers in their way are trying to find the best possible talent to deliver this means they're not just slapping the Superman, Batman name on something going forward uh, <laughs> and hoping it puts butts yeah. in seats, you know? So and you have two different kind of approaches or at least many different approaches to trying to elevate this this stuff and high low you know we we do high low at Vanity Fair and high low America's all about the high low take this sort of like pop culture-y comic book thing and one idea is like let's find as many Oscar winning or nominated actors as we can and another is let's find all the coolest auteur directors that we can let's let's adapt a Neil Gaiman thing that's like taking an intellectual approach to this type of so that's it's cool it's interesting
so now it's my turn, right, to play interviewer because yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Richard and Mike. Well, I believe both of you, right, are going to Toronto, the Toronto Film Festival um, in a couple months. And the lineup was just announced, or as you say, most of the lineup was just announced. And this is probably the most important, would you say, film festival for this podcast in terms of shaping the upcoming Oscar race. Is that accurate? Yeah, for sure. Um, I was talking with our producer, Sam, before we started recording, and I was like, we finally have um, the movies to talk about. Like. (laughs) Like, because now we have a kind of semi-confirmed, I mean, a, you know, a confirmed list of at least some of the the movies that we're really going to be talking about for the next, oh, good lord, like six months, um, which is which is exciting, and it's you know everything is fresh and new and you know and and, and mostly unseen at this point. So the the reveal of the Toronto schedule um, is always exciting. It comes about six weeks before the festival, and uh, yeah, and I was happy to see it's a good it's a good lineup this year. So my first question, I, I know that there are a few films on there that were at Cannes. I'm thinking of Jeff Nichols' Loving, at least, which you gave a rave review at Cannes, is on, the, is on the lineup. But what film or films are on there that you haven't seen that you're most excited for? Oh, boy. I mean, there's a lot. It's a, it's a huge festival. But I would say that some of the big standouts for me are um, sort of mysterious projects from interesting directors like... Um, Denis Villeneuve, who de Villeneuve uh, rather, who has done, um, he did Sicario, he did uh, uh, the Prisoners with Hugh Jackman. So, French Canadian film director, he has this movie called Arrival, uh, starring Amy Adams. That's about aliens. That I'm just like, what the heck is that going to be? He sort of squeezed <laughs> this in before he did Blade. He does the Blade Runner remake. So. Uh, I'm really curious about that. Um, I'm really curious about A Monster Calls, uh, which is this, this kind of fantasy drama directed by J.A. Bayona, who is a mostly a horror director. And um, this, uh, the trailer just came out, and this looks like it's going for the big kind of emotional, where the wild things are, sort of indie swell, which I'm really curious about because I did not know that the movie was going to go that direction. Um, and then I would say that like probably the other big, big one that I think is on pretty much everyone's list is La La Land, which is the Damien Chazelle film um, that's actually getting its world premiere in um, Venice uh, a couple of weeks before Toronto. Uh, Toronto. But um, And I actually will probably get to see that before Toronto because there's a sneaky little thing when looking at the lineup on Toronto is if it says just Canadian premiere, not North American premiere, and it's not like a Sundance movie, so you can, you can figure that that's going to be at Telluride, which they don't announce until the day before the festival starts. So have you, you know? done ah. you've done some de- you've done some detective work. So yeah. La La Land yeah. is there anything else on the list that you'll be seeing because you're going to Telluride as well? Yeah. Anything right. that you'll be seeing at Telluride? Anything else? Yeah. So La La Land because that's going to be at Venice, but then it, this is just saying it's Canadian premiere. So you're like, all right. So what's the North American premiere? Oh, I think it's Telluride. So that's that's one of them. Arrival, the the Villa New film, which I'm surprised about because he's big at Toronto. He's a Canadian filmmaker. I'm surprised that they didn't that he didn't just give them that sort of quote unquote exclusive. Um, and then another one that um, I'm curious about is uh, Bleed for this, which uh, is. I, I'm, I'm guessing going to be at, at Telluride, you know, just a couple days before Toronto starts, which is the Miles Teller boxing movie that just released its first trailer and that looks like it's making a major Oscar play. And that's Weinstein Company trying another boxing movie. Um, they have two boxing movies. I this think year? it's Weinstein. I could be wrong about that, but um, anyway, it's it it's it could be a big movie for Miles Teller who looked ascendant, you know, after Whiplash and then had a couple f- fumbles with a bad interview and then 
in a, a bomb kind of superhero movie, but this could <laughs> right. this this could un- undo all of that. So I, I I did want to ask you guys both. Um, my first the first time Spotlight popped up on my radar last year was Richard's glowing review out of Toronto, and Room was already on my radar, but Brie Larson as a real Oscar contender also came out of Toronto. So I was wondering when you're in it, when you're in that festival, is it you've gone a couple years now? Is it easy to to really hone in? on what has a likely Oscar chance or is it still sort of scattered when you, when you go? I, I think it's harder than it, than you might think, you know, I can remember seeing silver linings playbook and being like, huh, nice movie, you know, uh, not like, wow, this will be a heavy contender through the rest of the season. Um, you know, and then I can kind of remember seeing like 127 hours and going, wow, that's going to go all the way. And I think it did get nominated, but it just, you know, it's a little bit tough to to gauge for me what stuff is going to totally make it and what stuff isn't. And we, you know, we like to make fun of our friends like um, Kyle uh, from New York Magazine who just Kyle Buchanan. came right out. Kyle Buchanan and just came right out and said, 12 Years a Slave will win. But he was right, you know, but it's... <laughs> But but everyone was making fun of him. Like nobody right. was like, "Oh, Kyle, you wrote the article that I wish I wrote." Everyone was like, "You idiot!" Right. So it's um, well, and everyone he was like, not really in a great mood about it when I made fun of him personally. But uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I I think it's trickier than it looks. But maybe Richard, I don't know. What do you think? I think people like to hedge their bets because no one wants to take a huge swing and be wrong. Yeah. Um, I think in the Twelve Years a Slave case, it it just seemed so anointed from that premiere that everyone freaked out about. You know that Kyle kind of did take the risk and, and proved right. And you know, and I sat next to to Kyle and a couple other colleagues at Spotlight last year, and we all sort of said, you know, after the credits roll, we were like, oh, that's going to win Best Picture. Yeah. And then I started to doubt that as other movies like The Revenant and stuff sort of made their marches, you know, later in the in the season last year. I think that kind of the funny thing about Toronto is that like you were saying about Silver Linings, for me, it's harder to see which ones will have Oscar, or it's harder to see which ones won't have Oscar buzz than will. Like, I, I mean, like, you know, you see so many movies and you're like, okay, definitely Theory of Everything, definitely Room, definitely Spotlight. But then there are ones that you kind of just aren't on your radar that catch. And like, you know, um, like Brooklyn screened at Toronto after having been at Sundance months before. And I'd seen it at, at Sundance and I liked it, but I didn't think it was going to do much of anything. Yeah. So I wasn't really paying attention to it at Toronto. And then there was this whole other conversation happening about that movie. And then all of a sudden it emerged as this big Oscar favorite, got a best picture nominee over some other ones that I was convinced were going to go. So it's all, you know, it's, it's, there's so many movies there that it's, it's, it's one person can't really pay attention to every conversation. But I think you, I think I definitely know, I'm, I'm sure of like, probably five big movies after Toronto each year. It's also easier when a you're the target audience for that type of movie right. and b it's actually there's any there's enough buzz around it that like you're surrounded by people who agree that it's great, right? It's weird if you yeah. it's possible to walk in on something. This wasn't an Oscar movie, but I watched Spring Breakers with like seven people there and one of the other people was uh Jordan Hoffman. Mm-hmm. And we kind of walked up to each other and we're just like, um, is this really good? Like, is this amazing or what? Because I feel like an idiot that I'm even here. Jordan watches everything. He's the guy to talk to. That guy watches like 17 hours movies a day. Yeah. But, um, you know, something like Brooklyn, I have a feeling 
you know, it's not your kind of movie exactly, even though it right. wasn't mine either. I, li- I right. liked it a lot, but I didn't come out of there even when I saw it later and people were saying, this is Oscar-y. I wasn't right. like, oh my God, you know, totally. blow me away. Yeah, and I saw Brooklyn by myself on a, you know, like a random night at Sundance and then didn't talk yeah. to anyone about it, you know, for months. You guys didn't like gently weep throughout, just me? Okay, cool. <laughs> well, I mean, I was moved, but I didn't really have anyone to share that, that, that weeping with. But I will gently weep through Green Widow. <laughs> oh, Green Widow. Oh, Green Widow. Sure, and you are. Green Widow. Um, well, I did want to give Richard credit because your headline out of Toronto last year, or maybe Katie Rich, one of our editors, put that on there, but uh, Spotlight may have won the Toronto Oscar Buzz Race is your headline out of Toronto last year. So keep keep your eye on whatever Richard anoints as Richard the pick Lawson. this year. But, but let, let's, let's, let's parse that the... the, the Bet hedging in that headline, <laughs> yeah, may, may have, have won the buzz. Toronto yeah. <laughs> Oscar buzz race. I'm not making any definitive. <laughs> you're no, you know. you're no Kyle Buchanan. Okay, so the next question I want to ask you guys is, you know, you talked about how Toronto can be the place where Oscar buzz kind of goes to die a little bit. So I wanted to talk about the opening. This is just a trend I myself noticed, and Richard says this is common of a lot of film festivals. But the opening night film festival uh, position. So last year it was Demolition, which kind of died in the vine there. The year before that it was The Judge, and the year before that it was The Fifth Estate. So it seems like these are films that I feel like at least had a lot of energy going in, and then the reception wound up being a little, you know, a little lukewarm, and then they, you know, the the Oscar conversation kind of died there in Toronto. This year is The Magnificent Seven, which doesn't even seem like an oscar film to me. Maybe they decide to switch it up and just go with a crowd pleaser. Uh, but, you know, what do you think of that idea of like an opening night curse at the Cannes Film Festival? I mean, the Toronto Film Festival. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, it, it's true of a lot of festivals that, you know, for whatever reason, the opening night or closing night films aren't, I mean, that's not always true, but, you know, aren't like the strongest. And I think that they, they tend to have a kind of combination of Oscar-y buzz with a big star or a big director um, you know that that it could in some realm um, you know make an awards play but probably isn't strong enough or is too sort of mainstream or something you know and I think that that's what you see last year with Demolition I mean again that's you know that was Jean-Marc Valli another French Canadian filmmaker who the Toronto Film Festival is um a longtime supporter of. So, you know, in Demolition, you see, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal has had a huge apparatus behind him trying to get him an Oscar, whether it's Weinstein with Southpaw or, you know, whoever else. Um, so I think that was their kind of play last year that, you know, it was the combination of Jake Gyllenhaal, Canadian filmmaker. It was a good cast. Um, you know, I can see why it had a kind of a, a crowd pleasing message to it. Uh, I think that also is another thing. You kind of want to get people amped up for the for the festival, um, which is why The Fifth Estate was a very strange choice. Um, that's the um, Julian Assange movie with Benedict Cumberbatch. But yeah, this one, The Magnificent Seven, I mean, Chris Pratt, Denzel Washington, Matt Bomer, Ethan Hawke, Haley Bennett, who is this really up-and-coming young actress, um, directed by Anton Fuqua, who I believe The Equalizer, which he did, was at Toronto last year, the year before. I love that movie. Great, great yeah. plane movie. Yeah. I, yeah. I love Fuqua, so, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like this has potential to really get the, the festival started off uh, with a bang, so to speak, and um, and get people excited. And you get a lot of famous people on the red carpet, and uh, yeah. why the heck not? You know, it's kind of the Mad Max way to go. Although Mad Max ended up being an Oscar movie at, when it opened Cannes, so who the heck knows? Yeah, but I would I would agree with that. You you kind of want to kick things off with a nice big fun thing. Maybe they just thought it was with the Fifth Estate. They were just like, it's a Bill Condon movie. 
Right. He did Dream Girls. That's this will right. be a lot of fun. Yeah, Cumberbatch. Who who doesn't love him? Right. Who yeah. Love and uh, you but know. But then it was about people typing on computers. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. I see why they picked all those other movies, and I sort of feel like they were trying to make a make a bet, make a this is going to be the Argo this year, and I think they sort of didn't quite nail it a couple years in a row so now this year they're going for something as you say big and starry with a lot of energy that'll just sort of kick it off in a fun star-studded way and they're yeah, not trying to you know if yeah. that's good enough for can why shouldn't it be good enough for toronto like you don't have yeah. to hit the first pitch out of the park you know like just have a have a great opening night and and let people discover the next best picture right exactly so the closing night films are always are even a little more random. Um, you know, they have stars in them usually. Like a couple years ago, there was this great film called A Little Chaos with Kate Winslet, directed by the late Alan Rickman, that I really loved. And I caught a sort of industry screening that I wasn't supposed to be allowed into, but the publicist kind of helped me out and got me in. And it was there were maybe five people in it. And I came out loving this movie and thinking it was going to be big. And then it sort of closed the festival and then it didn't really do much. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that, that we can't really, who knows what the closing night movie, like um, this year it's a movie called um, The Edge of Seventeen, which uh, kind of a first time director with Haley Steinfeld, but it's produced by James L. Brooks, which is interesting. Yeah. So he's, he's got, he's got Oscar passed. <laughs> um, that, that's a good segue into a question I have, which is maybe a little chaos is your answer, Richard, but what's the film, what's the Toronto Film Festival film that you were just convinced was going to go that didn't go? Do you know? Oh, that is a good question. Um, you know, I, I, I thought that the imitation, even though it got a lot of nominations, I thought the imitation game could have gone really, really all the way. Um, and then it, it didn't just because I think other movies came along that, uh, sort of overshadowed it. But I think I tend to see it's these smaller things. It's a little chaos. It's, um, the meddler, which is a movie that came out this spring that I think that Susan Sarandon, if they released that movie in October, you know, even if it got a small release would be a best actress contender could still be. So I think that I just end up seeing so many movies that these little things that stick out, um, are the ones that I kind of bemoan that they didn't. I mean, and Mike, do you have like a big one that I, you feel like kind of crashed and burned at, at Toronto or, or just didn't, um, go the way you thought later in the season. The one that springs to mind is A Serious Man, the uh, Coen Brothers movie, which I can remember vividly seeing at an 8 a.m. screening with like a giant cup of coffee. And there's something about the weirdness of it being like first thing in the morning um, and this incredibly dark like Coen Brothers, perfectly assembled, weird movie. Um, uh, I really liked it a lot, but I don't know that I thought like that'll be a big Oscar movie, you know, yeah. which is kind of like like I expected people to not hate it, which I think people kind of did. Um, so, you know, there's a little festival fever. It's not like Sundance, though, I don't think. It's no. lower altitude. Yeah. And there's just the <laughs> general quality of movies is much higher. I mean, I mean, one thing I thought it, it might be interesting to to talk about is is why you would put your movie into Toronto versus holding it till the end of the year because i would say the majority of best picture winners the last 10 years have been in toronto like normally if you've got a great movie uh that you're hoping will be an oscar contender you're bringing it there uh if you can if you can and and it's only sort of if you've got an auteur director who's like going bananas with edits and it's not ready right and or you're a huge studio that just thinks i'm gonna open this fucker on christmas and 
blow out the competition. Right. Um, but that really hasn't worked very often. Well, it seems to almost happen. It almost yeah. happened with the, the Revenant, Revenant, which came out it's late. Wolf of you know, Wall Street. Right, which almost, you know, um, you know, so I, th- but I think you're right, Mike. I mean, if you look, like, we're going to talk about Argo after this, but like 12 years, Spotlight, like, you know, the past few years, it's been, it, it, they've been Toronto movies. Not not necessarily movies that started their run at Toronto. Right. Like, Spotlight was at, at um, Venice, but like, certainly they made b- the biggest splashes because you have so much international media. It's, you know, it's it's close to New York, a big me- media center. So a lot more journalists come than, than go yeah. to these obscure mountains or, you know, foreign countries. <laughs> you know, as sad as it is to say, um, that is true. And I think the other thing is, I believe the HFPA goes, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because they're mm-hmm. working in the United States. So that's like a big thing um, for coverage. But yeah, you know, I, I think that I don't really know what the, the, the wisdom would be uh, at this point. I think if you think you have it, just just start start your Oscar race in September. Maybe they're scared that people are going to get sick of the movie, but that just hasn't seemed to happen. Well, and I also think that campaigning has changed and become so uh, in such a big part of this that you kind of need the three months after Toronto to like stage your campaign and figure out your narrative and yeah, yeah. and be getting people to watch your movie. It's not it's just not enough time to to have like a month after your Christmas release, right? And I and I think that also you know. The kind of rhythms of of a campaign or the over award season are such that, you know, even people like us who are so in it all the time, like it, it can seem like a movie like Spotlight is getting forgotten as the Revenant comes along. But what you find instead is that the, those movies have much shorter arcs. I mean, look, the Revenant still did well; it won Best Actor and Best Director. Let's not, you know, right. but like, but like, <laughs> the arc Revenant, seems yeah. to be ha- higher and then but shorter. Where Spotlight just kind of had this steady slow burn and then. You know, and then one in the end, and I so I, it feels like that strategy has been working. What I'm curious about this year in particular is that there are a couple movies that were at Sundance, and it's been a while since we've had like a Sundance really movie really vie for Best Picture. It's been been a few years, but this year you have two, which are The Birth of a Nation, which we've talked about in this podcast, which yeah. is Nate Parker's um, Slave Rebellion biopic, um, which I think has a very strong shot of of certainly. Um, a lot of Oscar nominations. I, um, you know, I don't think it's it's not the most technically assured movie, but it has a huge message and, and especially in a kind of contentious political year. And then the other is a much smaller movie, but by a beloved filmmaker, uh, which is Manchester by the Sea, which is you know Kenneth Lonergan's movie with a beautiful performance by Casey Affleck. I can't see how he won't get a Best Actor nomination. I'm yes, I'm saying that definitively now. I really, I mean, it would be, I would be. Surprised I think you said that in January. Like, I think I did. I mean, yeah. we'll see. You know, cancel Oscar season. Yeah, Casey yeah. Affleck. <laughs> Keep Kyle Buchanan that way back in January. So uh. oh dear. you have to say it's going to win. Yeah. You have to say cancel yeah. Oscar season. Right. <laughs> um, do a full Kyle. Kyle, we what, like Kyle. What's so interesting about Birth of a Nation is that there's a you know there's a big huge like commercial friendly cineplex in a town near mine that mostly in the lobby there are standees for the big blockbusters but there's been a huge huge that striking american flag bloody american flag image cardboard standee for birth of a nation there for like two months (laughs) and it just it's the the energy around this film which as you say debuted at sundance gonna be at toronto is unusual I think that what you know that um, when I was at Sundance um, and I, I called into this show and I said you know it's just strange because it's it, Birth of a Nation is not a Sundancing movie at all it doesn't it it doesn't have the kind of tone or scope or whatever it's much bigger and um, and much more it's very religious you know um, 
But Toronto is a lot more accepting of a festival for those these kind of big Oscar bait movies. And so if it can use this much larger springboard as a way to kind of launch itself over all the competition, like it, it depending on the reaction to Toronto, it could sew the whole thing up then. I, yeah. I honestly think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's got a lot of momentum. And did we mention Loving? Because that's the one. Oh yeah, speaking yeah. of movies that were saying, at like... other festivals, so that was at Cannes, um, and you know I did like it. A lot of people really, really liked it. Um, and uh, you know I think that movie is smaller, and I hate that this is kind of tends to be how this thinking goes. But these are two movies about very different eras in the Black civil rights movement in the United States, and I just feel like Birth of a Nation speaks a lot more loudly. Um, and so we'll see if that if anything gets drowned if loving gets drowned out or maybe you know hopefully but there's I, room for two. Yeah, I was going to say that I think in other years that conventional wisdom stands true, but I think this year with so much of a pu- push for diverse narratives, um, and you've got a couple other films coming out like uh, Denzel Washington and Fences is an Oscar season movie. Like I think there's going to be a real push from this new class, you know, academy class to try to diversify what we see. So, you know, it used to be an either or used to be, well, we have 12 years of slaves, so it's not going to be anything else. But I don't know that that's, I mean, I'm definitely the Oscar in expert here, but like, you know, I feel like if any year is going to be the year for there to be room for two or three, it would be this year. Yeah. Well, I think that that's right. I think it's more like if two or three get nominated, do they end up the, the the traditional Oscar move would be to choose the safer one, right? Um, but right. you know, I, but but it's un, but, or or maybe the louder one. It, it's hard yeah. to say. I think this is a good segue to talk about about the 2013 Best uh, Picture race where Argo won because because what's on the one hand, we can all predict like this will win, but on the other hand, there's a lot of kind of shoe leather elbow grease that goes into winning. You know, mm-hmm. and you can't predict sitting in that theater whether they're gonna put up the right kind of campaign, whether they're gonna, you know, what's gonna happen. There's all yeah. kinds of weird stuff that can go happen uh, that can happen. And 2013 was really one of the weirdest ever, I would say. The nominees were Argo, Amor, Beast of the Southern Wild, which came out of Sundance. Uh, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, which I saw and was semi-underwhelmed by at uh, Toronto, and Zero Dark Thirty. Which is a really weird, eclectic. You have a Sundance movie, a Cannes movie. Like it's just, it's yeah. a very strange. Amor in there's yeah, Amor was that's... the Cannes right movie, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And Beast of the Sunwild, yeah, it was Sundance. Django came out late. Yeah. Uh, Les Miserables came out late. Lincoln came out late. Those uh, Zero Dark Thirty, I think they all were held back. I think Lincoln might have been a secret screening at the New York Film Festival, so very few people saw it. But it was. Right. Yeah, I have no. I mean, I don't remember. But but yeah, it's 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 a it's an interesting representation of festivals. It's also a crazy mix of genres yeah <laughs> i mean this is the new expanded you know best picture category work working at its kind of highest peak if there yeah. needs to be an action blockbuster in here and then we'd really have it all by the way <laughs> a lot of great movies there yeah i mean like that's a that's a great bunch of films uh in my opinion i liked all of those movies i have major issues politically with zero dark 30 mm-hmm. but like it's a hell of a movie yeah it's really well made uh despite so- this you know, endorsement of torture. It's, yeah, right. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, then then the weird thing was that, you know, for a lot of time people were saying, Argo, it's going to be Ben Affleck. This is his time. And then he didn't get nominated for a director. Mm-hmm. And everybody assumed that he was uh, therefore not 
any chance that he was going to win Best Picture. Right. But it seemed like there was a backlash to that. I think yeah. he won Best Director at the Golden Globes. Yes, that's right. And he charted quite. He was he was a very very ag- aggressive, involved participant in campaigning. I can tell you from personal experience, having sat <laughs> next to him at one of these lunches. I don't know, but looking back at it anyway, who would you give it to, Richard? You want to pick one? Um, yeah, I mean, again, like it's a lot of great movies, um, and I hate to. Be, I mean, you know, I even really liked Les Mis. I know that that's. I was quoted <laughs> on the po- on on the a uh, full page New York Times ad. <laughs> a review of that of Lemus. I really so, liked it too so and I, I liked Stereo 30 back. despite the politics you know um, but I have to say and as depressing as it is I think Amour on that list is the most shattering work of art on the list I think it's really hard to watch it's about you know it's about an old woman dying and her husband sort of you know watching that happen um, it's really effing depressing but yeah. uh, it's just such a work of art that I would say that Joanna what do you think it's a really hard one. Um, yeah. When we sort of look back at these at these Oscar race and, and rejudge them, I, I keep trying to think of like what's the film that is still like the most resonant now. What has t- stood the test of these few short years? For me, it would be Django, which I you know I don't know what to say about that. Um, I'm not always the hugest fan of Quentin Tarantino as a human, but Django is really sort of stuck with me personally and in the culture. And I think with Argo, the thing that sticks with people is just the line "Argo, fuck yourself," and then like that's it. But Argo as a piece of art, I don't think has stuck around in people's minds. It's still really entertaining and tense. Like I've watched that that you know the the, the final scene. You know, oh, the since. airport scene? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's good. But yeah, no, I know what you mean. And I think the same thing is true of Silver Lines Playbook or Life of Pi even that they just don't have the, the quite the resonance. Um it's crazy that in any other year or 10 years ago it would have been Lincoln no, no definitely because like, no question, movie, but, no yeah. question, right? <laughs> and, and and yet and yet well, you know, Joanna, I have a um, Django Unchained poster in my office, as probably there you go. may seem. <laughs> uh, you know, this was a year when when uh, I was really deep in there that year. And yeah. I went to the Governor's Ball, and I can remember um, seeing Jason Clark, one of the stars of Zero Dark Thirty, and Ben Zeitlin, the director of um, Beasts of the Southern Wild, just looking around, pissed off that they lost, and finally like, let's get the fuck out of here and get a drink. You know, it was so funny. But it was yeah. a crazy year. It was very hard fought. Yeah, uh, I think Django does stand out as like a really great movie and so much better than the Hateful Eight that it's not even funny. Yeah, I yeah. think I might give it to Beasts of the Southern Wild, even mm, though it's mm-hmm. weird yeah. that, that nothing has the follow-ups that I had hoped for. I have from not ben seen Zeitlin, from yeah. Ben Zeitlin from anybody involved in it. Yeah, but. I don't know. That's just an incredible movie. I don't know. That movie is the joyous sensory experience, whereas a more is the miserable sensory experience. Yeah. But they're both yeah. really powerful. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and it's fun when a kind of weird indie wins, even if it's bad for ratings. And you know, um, Lincoln is. I, I really enjoyed. Also, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed Lincoln. Boy, it was a great year. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well done, movies. T- movies of 2012. The world didn't <laughs> end, and they were actually good movies. Uh, what does the title refer to? The Argo, it's the thing. Like Jason and the Golden Fleece or what? No, no, it's the ship, it's the, it's the spaceship. It goes, it goes everywhere, it goes all, all throughout space. So it's the Argonaut? No. What, what does Argo mean? I don't know. You don't know? It means Argo, fuck yourself.
that's all for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you very much for listening, and please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. That is how we find new listeners. Uh, you can find all of us writing about award season at VanityFair.com, and follow us on Twitter. I'm Mike underscore Hogan, Richard. Rylaws. Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Little Gold Men is our slightly underused Twitter handle. Uh, this episode was produced and edited by Sam Dingman. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And the award for best new addition to Donald Trump's White House goes to Joanna. They filled their this pool with a bunch of models in day-glow yellow and pink inner tubes reading issues of Entertainment Weekly in the pool. But you've lost Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.